you know, take your Bibles with me, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're starting a new series today, brand new series, so uh, buckle up, get ready, we've got a lot of ground to cover. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm only going to read down through the introduction, verse 1, 2, and 3 this morning. It says this, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll stop there this week. We, we get started, and I've made a commitment this year that I'm going to walk us through every single verse of the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we may, I want to reserve the right to say we may take a break along the way. We may stop and address some different things along the way. There will be holidays along the way and other things. But we're really going to try, or I'm going to try and commit myself to walk through every single verse of this book. And I'd suggest that you read the book. And then reread the book or the letter more appropriately and familiarize yourself with it. And what you're going to see if you do that is that we're going to cover some of the most interesting topics that you'll ever find in the New Testament in the book of 1 Corinthians. In fact, we're going to cover some of the most difficult and uncomfortable and countercultural subjects that you'll find in the entire Bible in the book of 1 Corinthians. And that's one of the reasons, by the way that I've committed to preaching verse by verse through it because I know in my heart that there's going to come weeks where I look into this text and I think to myself, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. But if we've said from the beginning that we're going verse by verse, then that's exactly what we're going to do. And we're going to cover the, uh, the, the verses that are easy, the verses that are difficult, the verses that make us want to worship, the verses that make us want to crawl under our seats, and everything in between. So we're going to be going there. And, and before we really get to the, the, the meat of the letter, I just want to kind of hang out in the introduction this week and give you an overview or get you acquainted with the people and the setting that Paul's writing to. And it's really important that we understand the purpose of this letter. And the scholars generally agree, even though Paul doesn't say it explicitly, that what's happening here is that Paul's writing to this church as he's received from various sources information that this church that he planted is in trouble. There's a lot of things going on here that need to be addressed and that he's writing this letter, as you'll see, sort of answering all of these issues. And he answers some really difficult and serious problems in the church. He begins by addressing divisions in the church. The church is dividing itself along different lines, particularly along the lines of the leaders that they want to follow. Some want to follow Paul, some want to follow Apollos, and then there's all those self-righteous people who say, I don't follow any man, I just follow Jesus. And Paul says there's no divisions in the church. And then he goes on and he tackles one of the most strange and extreme examples of sexual immorality in the church in chapter 5, But not only is it happening in the church, the church has accepted it. And they're saying that because we love people, we're going to allow this to go on. And Paul confronts that. He he confronts in chapter 6 members bringing lawsuits against one another. The people in the church are suing one another. And and all sorts of strange things are happening. He talks in chapter 11 about the Lord's Supper and the abuses of the Lord's Supper. And we quote that verse a lot when we have, or that passage a lot when we have the Lord's Supper, but not the greater context, which is that people were showing up 
gathering as a church, observing the Lord's Supper, and they were actually getting drunk. It turned into a party, kind of a strange place for them to come and live it up. And Paul corrects that, and he corrects their disorderly worship services, which had become sort of free-for-alls, anything goes in the worship service. He corrects theological misunderstandings about the resurrection. I mean, really, the church is a mess. It's just a disaster. It's struggling around every turn. There's some big, big problem. And when I lived in North Carolina, Denise and I, on the weekends, sometimes we would, one of our favorite things to do was uh, to leave our house in Zebulon and drive down the back roads and they would wind us down these back roads and eventually we'd go to end up in a place called Smithfield. Some of you may have passed through there on 95 heading south and and there's a place there called JR's and it's basically a big junk warehouse where you go and buy cheap stuff that you don't need. But we'd go there, you know, on the weekends for something to do. And we'd drive down the back roads. And I always loved driving down the back roads there because the area that we lived in was cotton country. And so there would be cotton planted in these big sprawling fields out there. And at certain times of the year, the cotton would bloom and, and it would be beautiful, just white fields. And it's the strangest thing, you know, it almost looked like snow, but course it wasn't and there these white fields stretched out before I love driving down through there but there was also something along the way that always caught my attention not far outside of the town that we lived in as soon as you get on those back roads and leave the town behind you start headed towards Smithfield and there was on our left a little brick church building and I always always noticed this church building because of its name And out on the sign, for all the world to see, was the name Corinth Baptist Church. And I thought to myself, why in the world would anyone ever name their church Corinth Baptist Church? Like, it would have been more appropriate to just name the church Dysfunctional Baptist Church. Because that's really what was going on. The church was a mess. The church that Paul's writing to was a disaster. But not only was the church a mess, the setting that the church lived in was even worse. And you really have to understand what's going on in the setting around them. In verse 2, Paul addresses his letter to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, Corinth was an amazing place in the first century. In the time that Paul wrote this, around 55 AD, Corinth was like a, a, a mega city, just an important place. It was a, uh, one of the great cities of the ancient world for lots of reasons. Its geography uh, lent, lent itself to that. It was at the southern part of Greece, all the way at the southern part of Greece. And if you can imagine Greece kind of sprawling down, and then there's another almost island where Sparta is situated. And in between Sparta on that sort of island and Athens on the mainland, there's a little piece of land, just a little four-mile-wide piece of land that connects the two. And right in the center of that was Corinth. And so all the trade in Greece between Sparta and Athens, between those big, important cities of the ancient world... Every trade item and every person who was trading and every person who was traveling between those places had to pass through Corinth. So it was east-west, everything passed through there, and north-south too, because you couldn't sail around that island area. The outside of it was too dangerous. You were almost guaranteed to die. So what the sailors would do, it was so dangerous that they would sail their boats up through the 
the Saronic Sea, and they would come up into that, into that gulf. And if their boats were small enough, they would get out, and they would actually drag their boats four miles over land to the sea to the north and then pick up their journey there. If their boats were too big for that, then they would unload the boats, carry all their cargo four miles over land, and load it on another boat just so they could avoid going around that southern tip. So everything east-west passed through Corinth. Everything north-south passed through Corinth. It was a city that was the trade center of the Greek world. It was important. But it was famous for a different reason. Not because it was a trade center. It grew up because it was a trade center, but it became famous for another reason. It became famous for its brazen immorality. Corinth really was the original sin city. In fact, if we were going to try to find a a city in our own setting, our own culture to compare it to, uh, Las Vegas wouldn't do it justice. That would be child's play. San Francisco wouldn't even come close to what was going on in Corinth, any other place, you just couldn't imagine the, 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 the immorality that was rampant there. In fact, the word Corinthian became a synonym for a person who had low morals, a person who had horrible morals. One, one place that stood out, just an example of this, and you can actually still go there today, is that up on a hill on the eastern side of Corinth, you could go up on the hill and up there was the temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And up on that temple, resting above the city, looking out over all the city, there were a thousand temple priestesses. Now that sounds real gentle, but the truth is that they were a thousand sacred prostitutes that served the temple. But at night, when the sun fell, they would leave the temple behind and they would descend down the hill into the city and a thousand, at least a thousand prostitutes would cover the city. That's just an example of what it was like. The place was, was unbelievably awful. It became known for drunkenness and debauchery and filth in general. I mean, it really was an awful place to live. Now think back again to that church in North Carolina called Corinth Baptist Church. Who in the world would want to be called by that name? But imagine for the people that Paul writes to what it must have been like to live in that culture. Imagine what it would have been like to be a Christian trying to live out your faith in a place that was known around the civilized world as the most vile and immoral place on the planet. Imagine what that would have been like. I mean, it would have been exceedingly difficult, I think. And I, I think that we can draw some, some analogy into our own culture from them, into our own time from them. Our culture is not... Corinthian like they were. It's not that extreme, I don't think. I think we're headed there. But I I think our culture is becoming a more and more difficult place for a Christian to live out their faith faithfully, to be faithful to the gospel and the things that that, that, that Jesus has called us to do. We're living in a culture that I think we can say now in 2019, without a doubt, is opposed. Our culture is opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're living in opposition to it, just like the culture that surrounded this church. So how do we live out our faith in a place like that? How do we live out our faith counter-culturally? And I think that's exactly what Paul's going to teach them to do in this letter. And and, and why do we say that Christianity is counter-culture in the first place? Look at verse 2. I want to show you. 
some reasons and the way that Paul describes the people that he's writing to. And this helps us to understand that, that we can live out our faith in a culture opposed to our faith, but it means that you'll have to live counterculturally. And for the young people, particularly in this room, listen up. Because I feel like that, that you, if you're under the age of 25, are being dragged by chains into a culture that wants to destroy anything Christian in your consciousness. I believe that. So listen up. Listen up this morning. This is particularly for you. Listen to how Paul describes the people he's writing to. Look at verse 2. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now just stop right there and I want you to notice three words. Just quickly. I'm going to run through these quickly. Write these down. They're not in your PowerPoint this morning. Sorry, Denise. She always gets on me for that, for not putting these things on the screen. But they're not up there. Listen up. Here they are. Three words. Number one, church. To the church. He's writing to the church. And we went over this a few weeks ago when we talked about the church and the nature of the church and what that word really means. Ecclesia in Greek. It's a, a prefix and a root word, and the prefix means out of, and the root word means to call. And so we know that the word literally, if we just literally translate it, it means to be called out. Those who are called out, the church of the people who are called out. And then the word sanctified, he says, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And this word literally means to be set a place apart from God. To be set apart from God, to set a thing or a place apart from God, but not just to set it apart, to set it apart by offering a sacrifice upon it. And that helps us to understand why Paul says that we're sanctified in Christ Jesus. We're set apart, called out, in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ applied to our life. I mean, don't, don't miss that. When Jesus died on the cross, he became the perfect sacrifice for us. This is how we're sanctified, by the blood of Jesus. He became the perfect sacrifice. In the Old Testament, God required blood to be shed for the payment of sins, for the penalty of sins. There's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. And the priests stood daily. I heard one pastor say recently that Old Testament priests were just butchers. That's all they did. They just sacrificed day in and day out, covered in blood. But these sacrifices in the Old Covenant were a foreshadowing of a better sacrifice. When God sent His own Son, sent Jesus to live and then to die and shed His own blood for us. Hebrews 10, 11-14 says, Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool at His feet. For by a single offering, get this, by a single offering, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Same exact word. Set aside, set apart through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then the third word is the word saints. Called to be saints. The word literally means a thing or a person that's been devoted to the possession or the service of God. If you're reading from the NIV it says you're called to be holy people, but it's the same word. It means to be set aside in service to God. Now, I want you to notice something about those three words. They all have something in common. I wonder if I could ask you to 
just say one word that, they, that describes what they all have in common, would you do it? I would say the one thing they all have in common is the idea of separation. Separation. Called out. Sanctified. Set aside. Called to be holy. They all carry the idea of separation. So for us as, as followers of Jesus, we're meant to live out our faith counterculturally in the sense that there's a certain measure of separation between us and our culture. Now, I'm going to unpack that for you in just a minute. But before I do that, before I pursue the idea of us being separate from our culture, I want to explain to you what I don't mean by that. This is really important. Here's what I don't mean. When I say that we need to live separate from our culture, counterculturally, I do not mean that we should be isolated or absent from our culture. I do not mean that Christians need to be isolated or absent. I think that too many Christians believe that they come to Christ. And whether they would say they believe it, many of us just do this. We we come to Christ. We develop these Christian subcultures, which are monastic. We just shelter ourselves and, and we remove ourselves from the culture. And then what good are we in the world if we do that? I mean, how can our light shine? Didn't Jesus say that our light's to shine? How can our light shine if we're removed, if we put a basket over it? How can we season the world? How can we be salt of the earth if we're hiding from the earth? And we're going to see in in, in several weeks in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 that Paul addresses it specifically when he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So Paul says, I I don't want you to remove yourself from the world. We, as Christians, we don't isolate ourselves. We don't remove ourselves. We need to be present in our schools. We need to coach our kids' teams. We need to go uh, to PTA meetings. We need to go to neighborhood block parties. We need to go to the fair. We need to be present and do all the things that people do. Otherwise, how can we be faithful to our calling? So I don't mean when I say this morning we need to separate or live separate from our culture. I do not mean that we isolate ourselves or become absent. I also don't mean that we're separate in some sort of ivory tower kind of way where we suddenly believe that now we're Christians and we're not like those people anymore. You know, Paul was always careful to remind people when he talked about the world that you were just like them. And we're no different. We're all sinners. Every single one of us are sinners deserving judgment. There are no ivory towers in Christianity. There's only humility. If we boast in anything, we boast in the cross. That's the only thing that we have to boast in. So I don't mean that we look down our nose at the world because we're Christians. That's not what I mean. But here's what I do mean. I'll get to these things, and and these are, I think, in the PowerPoint. So guys, get ready. Here's what I do mean. How do we separate ourselves from the culture around us? First of all, we separate ourselves from the sins our culture sees as acceptable. We separate ourselves from the sin the culture sees as acceptable. And the Corinthian church, one of the enduring problems for them was that they were living in a culture that had 
normalized so many sins that they just couldn't seem to remove themselves from their culture. And they had decided that, well, this is just normal stuff. Paul gives us a list, seeming a list of the sins that had become acceptable in Corinthians 6, verse 9, where he says, Or do you not know? And he just gives us a list that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. And here's the word again, by the way, sanctified, the same word, sanctified and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Here's these things. These are acceptable in the world, but they're not supposed to be acceptable to you. Any of you who have ever come to my house know that I have some dogs and they're ill-mannered. And, and I'm blaming all of you because I try, I try, I try to tell my dog not to jump on people. But people inevitably come in the house and they go, oh, come here, come here. And the dogs jump up on you and they get up on you. And it's not unusual for you to go into somebody's house and there be a dog there who's a little bit, uh, a little bit excited and wants to greet you and jump up on you and lick you and do all that's That's pretty normal. But what if you came into my house, opened up the door, and around the corner came a 400-pound tiger? Jumped up on you and greeted you when you came into my house. Would that be normal? What would you do, by the way, if that happened? I think I'd lay down and play dead immediately. Like, I, I mean, I don't know what I'd do, but, but that would be... I mean, without a doubt, you would say, that's not normal. It's not normal for people to have tigers in their house. It's not normal for us to, to live that way. And, uh, but this week, I was watching something. I don't know how I came across it. I came across this family in Brazil that lives with seven tigers in their house. And th- these are not like animal trainers or people who had put on a show. These are people who rescued tigers, felt like they were being abused at the circus and rescued them, brought them into their home. And they play with the tigers. You've watched the video of these people. They're at the kitchen table eating dinner and there's a tiger sitting next to them. And they're, some of the daughters are getting putting makeup on and there's a tiger laying on the bed. They're swimming in the pool with a tiger. Swimming in the pool with a 400-pound tiger, just swimming in the pool with them. There's seven of these tigers, and it's kind of funny. There's one poor son-in-law who literally lives behind the door. Like He's so terrified of these things. But is that normal? It's not normal. But what struck me at the end of the, of the video was that one of the daughters said this, this, quote, For us, it's natural to have them around all the time. And you know what I was thinking when I heard that? I thought, and I think it applies here, that anything can become normal if you live with it long enough. Anything can be normal and become normal if you just allow it to be around you long enough. And I fear, especially for our young people, because of the media that you consume, because of the things you listen to, because of the celebrities that you follow on Instagram and everywhere else, I feel like that things are becoming normal for you that are never meant to be normal at all. Our culture is normalizing things. They're making 
things acceptable. And just because something is normal does not mean it's right. So we separate ourselves from the sin that our culture sees as acceptable. We separate ourselves, secondly, from the values of our culture. Separate ourselves from the values of our culture. And this is a really simple thing to understand. I'm going to say it like this. When the values of our culture are in conflict with the values of Scripture, we separate ourselves from the values of our culture. Do you hear what I just said? I'll say it again for those of you who are taking notes. When the values of our culture are in conflict with the values of Scripture, we separate ourselves from the values of our culture. If they're conflicting... There's no choice any longer. We separate ourselves from the values of our culture when they conflict with Scripture. And there could be no more vivid example of this than recently when we watched the governor of New York sign a bill into law that made abortions up until the point of birth legal in New York. And when he signed the bill, When he signed the bill, the place he congratulated the people, and the place erupted in applause and cheers. And I thought to myself, and let me be clear for a moment. Let me just be clear. If you're in this room today and you've had an abortion, God's grace is sufficient for you. Please don't hear me beating you up about that. God's grace covers all sin, every failure. We're all broken people, so I'm not beating you up on that. But what I am saying is that when our culture celebrates, celebrates the murder of innocent children, then we must separate ourselves from the values of our culture and stand on the values of Scripture. And we could go down a hundred roads, and I have other things in my notes that I'm not going to go down, but you can think of a hundred examples. And by the way, by the way, I know that there are people probably in our own congregation who would argue with me on that point and argue with me about the issue of abortion and the issue of life. But if you want to see a living abortion survivor, just look at my son who walks around this church and runs around this church. If you want to see what it looks like when an abortion is, 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 does not take place and instead we choose life, look at him. That's how we, if you don't know, that's how my wife and I ended up with him. He survived. That's what life looks like. So when our culture, cultural values lead us to accept anything that conflicts with the values prescribed in God's Word, we separate ourselves from the values of our culture and affirm the values of God's Word. That's what we do. Living counterculture is not a new thing. I mean, the, the Corinthian church had to do it. Every Christian from the very beginning had the pressure of either conforming to the culture or countering the culture. Conform to the culture or counter. The culture. Now I want you to notice one final thing here that helps us to understand how we live counterculturally. How do we do it? And what's the thing that governs every decision that we make? Notice one final thing in verse 2. Where he says, he's writing to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified, called out, set aside, called to be saints, placed Aside for the service of God, we know all these things. 
And then he says, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Both their Lord and ours. And then in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is key. This is key. To truly be a Christian, listen to what I'm going to say. I think it's in the PowerPoint, guys. Flip to the next slide. To truly be a Christian means that Jesus is Lord in our lives. That Jesus is the controlling authority in our lives. That we live our lives in willful submission to Him. Jesus is Lord. You notice that Paul doesn't just say, well, I'm calling upon you who call upon the name of our example, Jesus Christ. I'm calling to you or together with all those who never place call upon our Savior, Jesus Christ. Is Jesus our example? Absolutely. Is He our Savior? Absolutely. But I feel like that Paul's reinforcing something here from the very beginning. He's not just our example. He's not just our Savior. He's meant to be Lord. He's meant to control our lives, to be the authority in our lives. There's an interesting thing about the church at Corinth and the history of it. If you're a history buff, you'll enjoy this. About 35 years after Paul wrote this letter to the church, there was a new emperor that came to power in Rome named Domitian. And he was one of the cruelest of all the Caesars who ever ruled in Rome. And one of the things that he decided was that he mandated people would worship him as a god. How many of the Caesars were meant to be understood that way, but Domitian took it a step further. He set up shrines all over the Roman Empire, and people had to set aside certain days, and they had to pass before the shrine, and they had to make a public declaration. You know what they had to declare? Kaiser, O curios. Caesar is Lord. And if you defied Caesar, there was only one thing for you. And you were choosing death. And so the Christians had to make a choice. They had to make a choice. And in this crossroads of the world, around that same time, a man named Clement was living in Rome. He was the bishop of Rome at the time, and he also wrote a letter. It's surviving. You can read it to the Corinthian church. They were still struggling with a lot of things, but one of the things that Clement did is that he wrote to the believers, and he wrote to them and told them to stand firm in the face of overwhelming persecution, to stand firm. And they had one choice, and that was to affirm that their only leader Their only Lord is Jesus. Tradition tells us that Clement died when he was cast into the sea with an anchor tied around his neck. We don't know a lot of the details of the trial or the charges or anything, but I'm sure, I'm certain, without a doubt, that Clement would acknowledge no other Lord except Jesus Christ. And it cost him his life. Who's Lord of your life? What is Lord of your life? 
If today we asked you the question, and your life depended on it, would you say Jesus is Lord? Or would some other person, some other interest, some other thing be the controlling factor in your life? If you're going to live counter to this culture, and please again, one final appeal to our young people in the room. And by the way, can I say this? Y'all, can y'all give me 90 more seconds? Can, can, you, can I have that to talk to the young people for a moment? There is a rising desire amongst our young people to be radical, to be revolutionary, to be involved in something that shakes and shapes the world. And I want you to know that there's nothing more radical or revolutionary than saying to the world around you that Jesus is Lord of my life. There's no other way for you to be more radical. Don't just follow blindly behind the culture on your way to hell. Confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the most radical thing that you can do with your life. That's the most revolutionary thing that you can ever do in this world. And I'd encourage you to do it. That's how you live counterculturally. That's how you do it. Separate yourselves from the sins our culture sees as acceptable. Reject the values of our culture that conflict with the values of Scripture. And say, in the end, the controlling authority in my life will only ever be Jesus Christ. Countercultural. I invite our worship team to come back up. And we're going to begin to close. If you would, just bow your heads with me. And I know, I realize and understand the pressure to live counterculturally. I get it. I know that it's difficult. I know that there are a million reasons for us to quiet our voices. I know there are a million reasons for us to shrink back away from declaring that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. I know that there's a thousand reasons that we wouldn't want to publicly confess that Jesus is Lord of our lives. I get it. I know it's hard. But I want you to know we can be confident living counterculture, that we can be confident acknowledging Jesus is Lord because He's in control of all things. He's already victorious. He's already led a host of captives, captive and given gifts to men. That's already happened. And you have nothing to fear when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So we confess it today because we're confident that He lives.